Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years War, our weekly podcast in which we're looking through Froissart's chronicles of France, England, Spain, and other adjoining places. Last week we read through chapter 18, in which we looked at Edward's attempt to bring Scotland to heel by raising armies, moving into Scotland, and holding them to account for their raiding in England. Ultimately, that didn't go super well for Edward. Thankfully, it was not as costly as it could have been, but it still ended up being a venture that largely saw the English getting lost in Scotland, starving for a long period, not managing to exchange in any kind of formal battle, win or lose, and then just leaving. Now, I want to take a slightly different tack at the start today, because When I get to this point in discussions a lot about history and moving through time periods, a lot of the time someone will raise a pretty valid point of why can't people just get along? Edward and the Scots were at peace. Edward's mother had sacrificed a lot to achieve peace and the Scots got a good deal from Isabella. They had bad blood between them, but surely the first step to solving that would not being a jerk as soon as a new king got elected. Edward could have been a king of any kind, and certainly the Scots would have known that coming in and burning everything would have caused Edward to react exactly in the way that he did. There was an expectation from his people that he would do that. There are a lot of things that go into this. The Scots want to reclaim land. They want to reclaim monies. They want to reclaim honor and glory and those feelings of warrior tradition that do go into masculine virtues at this time. There is a lot to do with that. But you do find that these kind of problems exist even when none of those things are true. So I want to talk a little bit about how we can sometimes find ourselves in this situation. And so to leverage some knowledge in this department, I have actually taken a few notes from Ethics by John Dewey and James H. Tufts. This is a fairly old book on ethics, but I think ultimately the information in it is still going to be useful to our discussion, even if some of the language and the cadence that you get from the reading is a little bit sort of outdated. In all these cases, it is of course no abstract theory of crime which leads the community to react. It is self-preservation. The tribe must be kept together for protection against enemies. A chan sin is felt to be the cause of defeat. The violation of sex taboos may ruin the clan. The sorcerer may cause disease or inflict torture and death or bring pestilence or famine upon the whole group. Nonetheless, all such cases bring to consciousness one aspect of moral authority and the social control over the individual. And it is a social control, not an exercise of brute force or merely terrorizing by ghosts. For the chief or judge generally wins his authority by his powerful service to his tribesmen. A Gideon or Barak or Ehud or Jephthah judged Israel because he had delivered them. Three things, if possessed by a man, make him fit to be a chief of kindred, that he should speak on behalf of his kin and be listened to, that he should fight on behalf of his kin and be feared, and that he should be security on behalf of his kin and accepted. That small three rule quote taken from Welsh triads cited by Sebum. If, as is often the case, king or judge or chief regards himself as acting by divine right, the authority is still within the group. It is the group judging itself. In its standards, this primitive court is naturally on the level of customary morality, 
of which it is an agent, there is usually neither the conception of general principle of justice, like our common law, nor a positive law enacted as the express will of the people. At first, the judge or ruler may not act by any fixed law except that of upholding the customs. Each decision is then a special case. A step in advance is found when the heads or elders or priests of the tribe decides cases, not independently of all others, but in accordance with certain precedents or customs. A legal tradition is thus established, which, however imperfect, is likely to be more impartial than the arbitrary caprice of the moment, influenced as such special decisions are likely to be made by the rank or power of the parties concerned. A law of precedence or tradition is thus the normal method at this level. The progress toward a more rational standard belongs under the next chapter. And so I think that's an important thing for us to discuss as our first part of this discussion. First of all, the idea that when one member of the group is wronged as a crime, it is the group that responds, even if there is a single figure in charge. And that's kind of what we've seen play out here. England is attacked. The leader, in this case, Edward, says that that is wrong, as do all the people. And so England as a group mobilizes its defenses to fight Scotland. It's a social decision. It's an expectation that is placed upon Edward that he responds. But it's also following through that second part of the discussion in that Edward exists in a community that has been going for a very long time now. When he comes to make a decision, theoretically the king acts in however the way he feels is best. He can make whatever choice he wants. But by this point in England, there is a growing pressure that is formed by law. Precedent allows people to make decisions based on expectations that they have gained from how people act in the past and what the group decided was the correct decision to make in the past. If that person acted incorrectly by the group's judgment, then we can expect that that precedent will not be followed and that you will do something else. If it was the good decision, then we expect that that precedent will be followed. And so while there is a cultural inertia that protects Edward, it also traps him into certain patterns and he does have to expend significant political capital if he wants to escape it. And he's not going to be able to do that every time he wants to. Certainly Edward I was quite willful and wanted to make many decisions on his own and faced considerable opposition from Parliament when they decided that that wasn't going to be what they wanted to do. And he did not always get his way. In fact, failure to abide by this kind of precedent-based system was one of the things that really worked against Edward II. While he wanted to do his own thing, people had expectations of him and the failing to meet that and move within those kind of guided boundaries that were placed on him by society is one of the things that ultimately led to his deposition. And so I want to explore that space a little bit more and talk about the forming of standards. And so I'm going to read from exactly that chapter, the forming of standards. There is a standard, a good, a right, which is to some degree rational and to some degree social. We have seen that custom rests in part on rational conceptions of welfare. It is really nothing against this that a large element of luck enters into the idea of welfare. 
for this means merely that the actual conditions of welfare are not understood. The next generation may be able to point out as equally absurd our present ignorance about health and disease. The members of the group embodied in custom what they thought to be important. They were approving some acts and forbidding or condemning others. They were using the elders and the wisdom of all the past in order to govern life. So far then, they were acting morally. They were also, to a degree, using a rational and social standard when they made custom binding on all and conceived its origin as immemorial. When further they conceived it as approved by the gods, they gave it all the value they knew how to put into it. The standards and valuations of custom, however, are only partially rational. Many customs are irrational, some are injurious, but in them all the habitual is a large, if not the largest factor, and it is often strong enough to resist any attempt at rational testing. Dr. Arthur Smith tells us of the advantage it would be in certain parts of China to build a door on the south side of the house in order to get the breeze in hot weather. The simple and sufficient answer to such a suggestion is, we don't build doors on the south side. An additional weakness in the character of such irrational or partly rational standards is the misplaced energy they involve. What is merely trivial is made important and impressive as what has real significance. Moral life requires men to estimate the value of acts. If the irrelevant or the petty is made important, it not only prevents a high level of value for the really important act, it loads up conduct with burdens which keep it back. It introduces elements which must be got rid of later, often with heavy loss of what is genuinely valuable. When there are so many ways of offering the gods, and when these turn so often upon mere observance of routine and formula, it may require much subsequent time and energy to make amends. So what we're getting into there is sort of an answer to one of the regular arguments of, but why don't they just get rid of that? Because when you talk about the idea that someone feels trapped socially by traditionalism, there will often be someone who raises the idea of, but there have been trailblazers in the past. There have been people who struck out on their own, they did their own thing, and they got to set new traditions. There is a reason that there aren't a lot of people like that. And this is one of the factors into it. When you are somebody who is inside of that space, the way that you can trailblaze out of it is not often clear to you. You often don't even recognize that thing as being a problem because it's something that you take for granted. In fact, it's maybe something that even though it is not useful, it's something that is a part of your identity. And because you give it value, you choose not to remove that as part of your life, even if building a door in the south side of your house could give you an actual benefit the spiritual, superstitious, societal, or any other cost that would be involved, even if that's just a personal one or a cultural one, can be enough to dissuade people from taking actions outside of what the group has deemed to be the right thing to do. And so oftentimes, especially in something that is so involved with traditionalism and cultural appointments as rulership, those areas are very hard to break out of, especially if you don't have something to assist you. There's no breakdown in this current system to convince people to abandon it. You don't have a huge amount of political capital or heroic presence that will allow you to just 
say, this is what we should do and have people invest their belief in you rather than the other traditions and the other societal customs that they use to build their feeling of self, community, culture, and group. The other thing to quickly mention about why people don't suddenly become radical free thinkers who change the society that they're a part of is that oftentimes there will be opposition. Traditionalists, conservatives, people who like the way things are or want to get back to the way things were will often resist new ideas. But of course, these forces are not impersonal. Sometimes they seem to act like the ocean tide pulling silently in and only now and then sending a wave a little higher than its fellows. Frequently, however, some great personality stands out preeminent, either as a critic of the old or builder of the new. The prophets were stoned because they condemned the present. The next generation was ready to build their sepulchros. Socrates is the classic example of a man who perishes in seeking to find a rational basis to replace that of custom. Indeed, this conflict on one hand, the rigid system of tradition and corporate union hallowed by all the sanctions of religion and public opinion. On the other, the individual making an appeal to reason or to his conscience or to a higher law is the tragedy of history. And so I know there's been no end of new things to try and remember as we've gone through this, but I do want you to keep in mind that kind of feeling that would be moving along with these people, this kind of flow that they may not even be conscious of as they try and understand how to navigate this space, especially in a context for Edward here, where these kind of moralistic and societal failings of his father led to that man's deposition by his mother in a violent seizure of power that was deemed to be necessary for the realm. The social group actually decided that it was time to remove him because of his failings. While I can't say exactly what would have been in his mind, it does seem to me quite realistic that Edward III would have been brought into court life with a firm idea of social understanding, but also I think it would be quite realistic to believe that it's something he would take very seriously and something that he may not be fully aware of factoring into his decisions because of how it had affected his upbringing and his way of thinking. I think then it's also relevant to say for the Scots that getting past something, getting to something like peace in that situation where you do have generations of bloodshed, they are quite possibly equally trapped in a cycle of violence that they can perpetuate all on their own. Even if they have peace, there has been so much taken, there has been so much damage dealt, there has been so much lost that given the chance to revenge themselves upon the English, there is a force pulling them in that direction, whether it's right or wrong, it's a hard thing to avoid. And any king who wanted to push for peace would need to have considerable strength of character as well as political capital with other barons and nobility in order to actually rein in the desire of the country to then take up this feud, to reclaim lands, reclaim honor and wealth and to deliver the pain that they feel onto others, which is 
unfortunately, a very natural desire that many people strongly feel, especially when they have been wronged for such a long time. It's not to say that there are good guys and bad guys in this dispute. There is more than enough blame to go around, and I'm sure either side could find plenty of people to point fingers at. But it is something that prevents groups of people from standing up and saying, enough is enough. All right. With that being said, let's get back to the Chronicle and have a bit of a look at chapter 19. How King Edward was married to my lady Philippa of Hainault. It was not long after, but that the king and the queen his mother, the Earl of Kent his uncle, the Earl of Lancaster, Sir Roger Mortimer, and all the barons of England, and by the advice of the king's council, they sent a bishop and two knights bannerets with two notable clerks to Sir John of Hainault, praying him to be a mean that their lord, the young king of England, might have in marriage one of the earl's daughters of Hainault, his brother named Philippa. For the king and all the nobles of the realm had rather have her than any other lady, for the love of him, Sir John of Hainault, Lord of Beaumont, feasted and honoured greatly these ambassadors, and brought them to Valencians to the Earl his brother, who honourably received them and made them such cheer that it were over long here to rehearse. And when they had showed the content of their message, the Earl said, Sirs, I thank greatly the King your Prince, and the Queen his mother, and all other lords of England, sith they have sent such sufficient personages as ye be to do me such honour as to treat for the marriage, to the which request I am well agreed, if our Holy Father the Pope will consent thereto, with the which answers these ambassadors were right well content. Then they sent two knights and two clerks incontinent to the Pope to Avignon, to purchase a dispensation for this marriage to be had, for without the Pope's license they may not marry, for by the lineage of France they were so near of kin as at the third degree, for the two mothers were cousin Germans issued of two brethren. And when these ambassadors were come to the Pope, and their request and considerations well heard, our Holy Father the Pope, with all the whole college, consented to this marriage, and so feasted them. And then they departed and came again to Valencians with their balls. Two points there to quickly interrupt with. First, the Pope being in Avignon, at this point, Italy, and thus the Vatican States, was quite dangerous. Mercenary companies in Rome had been engaged in all kinds of different warfare, whether the proxy wars or wars between uh, different neighboring states or groups. Basically, Rome was not safe, and the Pope was living in Avignon at this point. Uh, the second one is that final sentence there, they departed and came to Valencians with their bulls. They're not talking about animals here. They're talking about a bully pulpit, which is basically in this case referring to a written decree from the Pope that is declaring that he gives dispensation for Edward to marry Philippa. Then this marriage was concluded and affirmed on both parties. Then there was devised and purveyed for their apparel and for all things honourable that belonged to such a lady who should be Queen of England. And there this princess was married by a sufficient procuration brought from the King of England. And after all feasts and triumphs done, then this young queen entered into the sea at Wissant and arrived with all her company at Dover. And Sir John of Hainault, Lord Beaumont, her uncle, did conduct her to the city of London where there was made great feast, and many nobles of England, and the queen was crowned. 
And there was also great jousts, tawnies, dancing, caroling, and great feasts every day, the which endured the space of three weeks. The English Chronicle saith this marriage and coronation of the Queen was done at York with much honour, the Sunday in the even of the conversation of St. Paul, in the year of our Lord, M-C-C-C-X-X-V-I-I, in the which the Chronicle is showed many other things of the ruling of the realm, and of the death of King Edward of Carnarvon, and diverse other debtors that were within the realm, as in the same Chronicle more plainly it appeareth the which the author of this book speaketh no word of, because peradventure he knew it not, for it was hard for a stranger to know all these things. For those interested, this is a reference to Fabian, page 439. But according to his writing, this young queen Philippa abode still in England with a small company of any persons of her own country, saving one who is named Watlet of many, who abode still with the queen and was her carver, and after did so many great prowess in diverse places that it were hard to make mention of them all. Okay, I think that's going to wrap things up for today. I know this was a bit of a short episode, but I didn't want to make that tangent too long, and I don't want to spend too much time deviating from the story of the Chronicle. So I thought it would be good to just place it in here with a small chapter, which was chapter 19. Next week, we're going to come back for chapter 20 and wrap up the dispute between England and Scotland for the time being. And we'll see what else might be happening in other parts of the world after that. Hopefully, I'll see you again for that next episode. And I hope you look forward to more Chronicles The Hundred Years War.